0: Uh, Tonight we're actually going to get a taste of, um, the first taste of the character, the culture, the flavor of this kingdom of God. This thing that God's doing in the world to make everything good and right and make everything fit again the way it was meant to. That's what we're going to look at tonight. We're not going to read this entire passage, but most of it. So why don't you stand up? We'll get into this. This is from a very famous message. This is kind of Jesus' debut Um, it's called the Sermon on the Mount the particular part we're looking at here uh, is called the Beatitudes which is I think a Latin term or some kind of term for the blessed ones Um, but this is who Jesus is describing these are these are the people who've truly arrived these are the people uh, who are the recipients of God's kingdom he's describing them let's read now when Jesus saw the crowds he went up on a mountainside and he sat down His disciples came to Him. Jesus began to teach them. He said to them, Blessed are the poor in spirit, the spiritual poor people, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn. They're the ones who will be comforted. Blessed are the meek, or the gentle, or the humble, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. They will be filled. Blessed are the merciful. Mercy will be shown to them. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they're the ones who will see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called children of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Actually, we'll stop there. Those last few verses we'll get into next week. Why don't we pray? Lord Jesus, we pray that we would hear these words fresh and real. That they would cut through the distraction, the callousness, the hardness, the confusion. You're not just a good teacher because you're wise. You're a good teacher because of your Holy Spirit. who can actually penetrate our hearts and our minds and do things that we ourselves even cannot do in our hearts and minds. And so that's what we ask because we need it from you tonight. Thank you for Daniel's um, intercession for Houston. We pray especially, Lord, tonight for the handicapped. The sick, the kids with cerebral palsy, the people without their medicine, the people who go to bed for the fifth night in a row on their rooftop with no help, with no water, with no food. We pray for the babies. We pray for the people who just had surgery and recovering at home, and now home is eight feet deep in water. We ask your mercy. Send more boats, send more helicopters, send more people, we pray. We pray that we would serve our neighbors by praying for them and calling upon you to act. We ask this in your name, Lord. Amen. Thanks. You can take a seat. I'm pretty confident Michael and I are the only two people in the room who will know what I'm about to talk about. But when I was growing up, there was a show that everybody used to watch on Saturdays. And it was the talk of the town. Everybody watched it every Saturday. And it was called The Lifestyles of the Rich and Famous. Have you even heard about it? <laughs> Nobody. <laughs> Lifestyles of the Rich and Famous. So it was this show that every week, every new episode, they would, this kind of British aristocratic sounding guy, he would go visit a, diff- a different, he'd do a profile on a different wealthy person, like mega rich, all over the world. And they would do what you expect. They'd have a camera crew that would basically follow these people around for a whole week. And you'd get to see the mega mansion they lived in, the yachts they went out on the weekend. Uh, You'd get to see the restaurants they went to, the wine in their wine cellar, their infinity pool that had the beautiful view of the mountains or the ocean. Um, And uh, every week, week after week, you would get a taste of what it would be like to be super, super rich. That was the point of the show to kind of let us get a sneak peek in what the lifestyle of these people is like, and what wealth does to a person. It, it lets you see how money changes a person. So week after week, that was what happened. And these are the people who to kind of use the metaphor of kingdoms, in the kingdom of this world, these are the people who've made it. They've made a name for themselves. they've made a life for themselves. They've made a ton of money for themselves. These are the people who've arrived. They've made it. And, and everyone would watch those shows on Saturdays, not just for the entertainment value, but dreaming of what could maybe one day be mine. Now, this passage we just read, we call it the Beatitudes or the Sermon on the Mount. It's kind of like that show, except instead of Lifestyles of the Rich and Famous, Jesus is doing a similar thing, but he calls it Lifestyles of the Redeemed and the Rescued. And he is, in essence, taking a camera crew into a normal week in the life of a Christian, which is not a label that we apply to ourselves. The term Christian means that you're someone that God has made alive. You were born dead. He's come to you. He's breathed grace on you. You're innocent now. You're righteous now. You're good now. Sin is still present in your heart, but it doesn't enslave you. Jesus is bringing a camera crew and saying he's giving us a sneak peek into what a normal day or a normal week would look like in the lifestyles of the redeemed and the rescued. And it's a picture of how grace changes a person. What grace does to someone's lifestyle, to their emotions, to their dreams or their desires. And it's not at all what you'd expect. Lifestyles of the rich and famous, it's exactly what you'd expect, right? The nice cars, the nice restaurants, the big house. Lifestyles of the redeemed and the rescued is not at all what you'd expect. Did you pick up on the words we just read? Spiritual poverty, uh, those who mourn. He talks about persecution, meekness, hunger, gentleness, humility. Humility. These are not the things you would expect when the king of the whole universe comes and he says, I'm going to make everything right now. And these people, my people, my disciples, those who have put their faith in me, they're the people I'm going to start this work in. They're going to be the billboards for the power of my grace. This is not what you would expect. The effect that grace would have on a person. And yet, this is the picture Jesus gives. Some of the first words out of his mouth when he's announcing my kingdom's come. This is the picture Jesus gives of those who have arrived. They've made it in the kingdom of God. Not of their own doing, not of their own effort, not of their own intelligence or anything else, but because God has plucked them out of their helplessness, put them in his kingdom. And they're the ones who are blessed. They're the ones who have made it. And another way to think about it, he's showing us the lifestyle that grace will produce. These are the symptoms of being spiritually alive. These are the vital signs of knowing God, of being alive again, of being resurrected. And just like I said, it's like Jesus is taking a camera crew uh, through this. Now, this is the beginning of Jesus' ministry. He's still really popular at this point because... He probably just hasn't said enough to drive the crowds away. That will happen in the months and the years to come. He's probably about 30 years old at this point. He's just beginning his public ministry. People are flocking to him. They want to be a part of his kingdom. Everybody back then, there was no such thing as atheism back then or agnosticism. Everybody was religious up until about the past 200 years actually. Everybody was religious. And in this context, everyone was Jewish, either a secular Jew or a really devoted Jew. But regardless of whether you went to synagogue or not on the weekends, everybody was expecting this king because God had not kept it a secret. He'd always said, put it right out on the table. Here's my cards, everybody. I'm going to send a good king who's going to make everything right again. He's not going to be corrupt. He's not going to be a grandstander or a showboat. He's going to serve his people. He's even going to suffer for his people. So everybody was waiting on this king. And so they're like, Jesus is saying he's the king. So they're flocking to him. They want to hear what he has to say. The problem is, you let someone's expectations grow for hundreds of years, they're bound to have the wrong expectations of what this king will be like and what kind of kingdom he'll bring, right? Y'all are old enough by this point in your lives, right, to know that expectations are dangerous things, right? You know what happens if you have super high unrealistic expectations? Every day of your life is disappointment, frustration, anger. Maybe, you, maybe you're not angry anymore because you've become cynical. You just don't have expectations. But these people had some big expectations of what this Messiah would be like, what his, um, what his kingdom would be like, what life with him would be like. And so one of the very first things Jesus does is he resets them and he recalibrates them and he says, let's take these expectations and not like let's bring them down. It's not like you expect too much from me, but he's like, let's let's repair them because if these expectations you have of what it's like to live with God or what it's like to be a Christian. If they're not adjusted pretty violently and, and flipped right side up, uh, it's going to leave you the world of hurt and confusion. So Jesus is taking things and he's putting them back in the right place. And I think this has a really practical benefit before we look at each of these things. If he didn't do this, you, if you're a Christian, if you're not even, you would be stuck for the rest of your life in a place of wondering, is this how it's supposed to feel? My spiritual life, my, my life with God, my relationships, my struggle with my sexuality or my struggle with my diligence or my procrastination, my struggle with my mom and my dad. Is this how it's supposed to be or am I the freak who got left behind? Like I didn't get the memo that everybody else obviously got. And I'm over here trying to figure out just the simplest little thing and everyone else seemed like they figured that out a long time ago. Is my experience, is this the way, is, am I on the right path? You'd be stuck there forever if Jesus didn't come and say, this is what life with me is like. He also tells us these things to encourage us. Because for a lot of you, when we dive into this in just a second, you're going to start thinking, wow, this is super encouraging. He read that passage and I thought it was super depressing. It's actually incredibly encouraging because all those things I thought were wasted days of my life or these these icky feelings of feeling like I'm not good enough, or whatever else. That actually, God says I'm blessed. He actually says that humility, when I think that I'm I'm really not that not that put together of a person. God says that's actually a good thing, not a bad thing. So this can be really encouraging. The last thing it can do for you is it can be a little bit of a diagno- diagnostic for you. Because uh, if you're like me. I got all the way up to, through 24 years of my life attaching the label of Christian to me because I went to church, I was raised in a Christian family, I believed in God. So I slapped the label Christian on me until I started to come across passages like this, and I'm like, that's not true of me. This is not the life I want. See, I kept that a secret. I was terrified to admit that. But it's like, this, this doesn't seem appealing to me. This isn't true about me. This passage is a diagnostic for some of you to say, Am I a part of Jesus' kingdom? Have I been made alive? Or am I still dead in my own little kingdom and I need him to make me alive, even tonight? So it's an encouragement. It's a diagnostic. It's a sneak peek of the real Christian life. Those are the three things, at least, that this passage is. Before Now, listen. i gotta be, I got to go out of my way to be extra clear about this. Bef- before we do this, before we go thing by thing and talk about these blessed is the so and so we got to make sure we're clear on something these beatitudes this stuff in verse, from verse 3 through verse 12 is not it is not describing how to become a Christian it is not a description of how to make God happy with you it is not instructions on how to get close to God again or to be serious in your spiritual life again it's not any of that this is not the entrance requirements for the kingdom of God, right? It's not do these things, feel bad uh, about your sin, feel poor, uh, mourn, uh, be merciful, um, rejoice when you're persecuted, and then you'll be you can come in that you can kind of come in the room and be a part of God's kingdom. No, 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 no. It's the opposite. This is a description of those who are already alive. These are like vital signs, right? Vital signs don't make you alive. They're proof that you are alive, right? You can't walk up to a corpse and say, Quick, give him a heart rate, give him breath, give him a blood pressure, give him capillary function. And then the corpse comes to life. No. Vital signs are simply proof that life is already there. The Beatitudes are simply proof that spiritual life is already there. That you've already been reconciled to God that grace has already landed on your doorstep and begun its transforming work in your life. Does that make sense? If it doesn't, take this example. Here's a little bit like what I'm describing. If I waddle around and quack like a duck and wear a coat covered in feathers, my behavior is acting like a duck. That doesn't make me a duck, right? It makes me a weird person that you want to leave, but... (laughs) behavior can't change your condition this is a this is free of charge this is a mega insight for the rest of your life behavior cannot change your condition what i just said stands in contrast to every other religious system in human history past present or future it stands in opposition to Secularism, it stands in opposition to agnosticism and do goodism and humanism and love your fellow man and do you be you. What I just said is specific and unique to Christianity in the world. Behavior cannot change your condition, just like me quacking and waddling can't make me a duck. But a changed condition will change your behavior. Right? Changed behavior won't change your condition, but a change in your condition will change your behavior. Let's say there was like a magician in the room, or let's say God himself said, Ben is here by a duck now, and he touches me with a wand or something, and I become a duck. And I start waddling around and quacking, and I have feathers. My condition changed, and so my behavior changed. Right? It only works one way. The gospel of Jesus Christ, the grace of God, the Bible, whatever you want to call it, Christianity is unique in the world in saying God changes your condition free of charge by grace. Don't bring anything, don't try to pay for it. He doesn't like that. God will change your condition freely. And then you'll find your behavior changing. Religion works righteousness, legalism A life of despair where you'll never measure up is a life of change this, change that, stop doing this, stop doing that. And then your condition will change. God will be happy with you. You'll be a son, a daughter, someone he's pleased in instead of someone he's angry with. Doesn't work that way. Condition first, then behavior. The Beatitudes are talking about the behavior or the lifestyle that flows out of a changed condition. It's not teaching you how to change your condition on your own. Jesus is describing the behavior of his people. And the difference is really important. So make sure you caught that before we go on. Or else you'll leave tonight with like six or seven to-do lists that will lead you away from God, not towards him. All right. So we've, we've put that out there. Let's just look at the first few of these. The last couple are for next week, not this week. When Jesus describes what his disciples will be like, when you have a changed condition, when God takes out that dead heart in you that you were born with and puts in a living heart, all you got to do is ask for it, by the way. When he makes that change in you and you come alive, the first thing Jesus says that will happen or that will characterize you, more or less, I'm not saying in purity and perfection, But to some, imagine a speedometer. To some extent, that speedometer is going to be moving up here. You're going to feel something called poverty of spirit. At some level of intensity, poverty spirit, which is this. Grace will make you know that you're a spiritual kind of down and out. That you're a spiritual panhandler. I don't have money. I don't have money for grace. Can you give it to me? Ding, ding, ding. Can you give it to me because I don't have it? God's grace at work in your life will make you see your poverty. It will, it will open your eyes that you have nothing to bring to God. Period. No comma there, no semicolon, no parentheses, period. God's grace. If you want to know if grace has met you and started to change you, you know that you can't do anything to make God happy with you or pleased with you or proud of you. You know that all that you can bring God is a lifetime of brokenness, a lifetime of shame, a lifetime of guilt. Grace will make you see your poverty. It will make you realize you don't have what it takes. Spiritually, you don't have what it takes to make it, to arrive, to get there, to measure up. And God says, this is crazy talk. He says, those are the blessed ones. The poor people who don't have what it takes to get back to me. The people who have no moral money, no ethical payment to say, look, I'm still this, I'm still a virgin. Look, I still, uh, I still honor my parents. Look, I'm good with my money. Look, I get drunk but not every night. No, 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 no. Those aren't the blessed people. The blessed people are the ones who know I don't have anything. The unblessed, if you're going to reverse these, the unblessed are those who are proud, presumptuous, kind of walking around with a spiritual cockiness that God's impressed with me. Because of my track record, the rules I've kept, the lines I haven't colored outside of. Man, God's really happy with me. I'm one of the good ones. Like, you know, I don't, I don't annoy him like all the other people do. It's spiritual self-confidence. The operative word there, self Spiritual confidence ain't bad at all. It's a good thing to be confident in God's love for you. Spiritual self-confidence is fatal. It's fatal. It'll kill your soul. Because it'll keep you from the only God who can bring you back to life. The song we just sang, uh, the song, all the songs we sang tonight were perfect for this passage. Rock of Ages is words that you just sang out of your very own lips. Did you catch what you sang? Not the labor of my hands can fulfil thy law's demands. Could my zeal or my passion for God, how fired up I am, could my zeal no respite no. Could my tears I God I feel so bad about that, I feel so sorry, I'm so devoted to you. Could my tears forever flow? All for sin could not atone. You must save and you alone. Nothing in my hand I bring. Simply to your cross I cling. Naked come to thee for dress. Helpless look to you for grace. Foul. I to the fountain fly. Wash me, Savior, or I die. That's the gospel. That's liberating. That's free. That's, uh, you get to rest, Right? That's not a life of try to change your condition by being a better person. Jesus goes right on after that in verse 4 to say, Here's another another characteristic of, of my people, more or less. Blessed are those who mourn. They're the ones who are going to be comforted by me. Grace doesn't just make you aware of your spiritual poverty and all that you don't have. Grace also wakes you up to the brokenness inside of you and around you. Grace makes you weep that things like Charlottesville happen and things like Houston happen and things like what happened in Clovis yesterday happen. Grace breaks your heart because you know this world is not the way it was made to be. And you know you're not the way you were made to be and that breaks your heart too. And so it, it doesn't say blessed are the depressed. It says blessed are those who mourn because they're in tune with reality. You're not naive. You're not zippity-doo-dah. Nor are you hopelessly depressed, but there's a mature, sober sense of mourning about you that things don't fit. They're not the way they're supposed to be. Jesus says it's when you're so aware of the brokenness inside of you and around you, that's the moment. Those are the places you will find your king rushing to you to comfort you. The word comfort, it's two words, con or come, which means with, and fort, which is fortress. When your king comes to comfort you, he comes to build a fortress around you to protect you, to make you secure and safe. That's what he means. Blessed are those who mourn. I will build a castle around them. I will keep them safe. Let me ask you this question real quick. We'll bring it down to earth. Do you think God is disappointed in you or angry at you, Christian, for your repeated failures and mess-ups? Do you think he is just rolling his eyes at you and done with you because of the brokenness in you? Did you catch how Jesus just said the very opposite of that? Heaven rejoices When you wake up to the brokenness inside of you and around you, and it breaks your heart, Jesus says, I will comfort you, not abandon you. I will come alongside of you and help, not roll my eyes that you still did that yesterday. The self content, the self satisfied will go uncomforted because they're not looking for comfort. You are your fortress, you are your castle. You make life safe. And so you never run to God. I never run to Jesus. We never do any of that because we ourselves are our own Messiah, our own rescue, our own Savior. Or at least we try to be. And we have a life void of comfort, void of security, right? We're insecure. We're restless. We're anxious. Jesus says after that in verse 5, Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. No one uses the word meek anymore. Jesus was called meek. It doesn't mean a doormat. It doesn't mean someone who gets walked all over because you're so deferential. Meekness means uh, you're aware of your condition and you're, you're, you're content in it. You're aware of your status. There's a humility about you. Which is to say this grace, God's grace to you, will deflate your overinflatedness. It'll let the air out of the balloon so you can become less stretched and ready to pop. Grace will cut you back down to size, and that'll be a good thing. Because your world will fit again. That's what he means when he says the meek. They will inherit the earth, which means they're going to get this place. Not the powerful, not the super overly ambitious. Not those who write their own ticket or make their own future, but the meek are the ones who are going to get it all. Because God controls who receives the earth, the kingdom, and he is going to give it to the meek, the humble. And notice that as we embrace our condition, notice that God embraces your condition too. You embrace your low condition. Man, I'm not good at a lot of stuff. That's okay. God made me good at a few things. That's okay. Man, I don't have this personality. I have this personality. That's okay. God gave you this personality, not those people's personality. Man, I'm not as far along as I thought I would be in this struggle against this temptation or whatever. Hey, God's aware of where you are. It's, it's an embracing of where you are because you know God knows where you are. Verse 6, Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, which is to say this, grace gives you an appetite for God. Did you know you can't even want God apart from God's grace? You can't even desire Him. You can't even find Him attractive apart from Him giving you the grace to do that. Grace gives you a huge appetite for a right relationship with God. Grace makes you want to know Him. It makes Him beautiful. It makes His world, His kingdom attractive to you. And so you hunger for it. You thirst for it. You crave becoming more like God. You thirst to feel closer and to to be closer to Christ. You crave becoming more like God in your speech, your relationship, your work, your sexuality, your physicality, all of it, your academic work. That's what you want. It's what you you think about. It's attractive to you. Verse 7, blessed are the merciful. They're the ones who will be shown mercy. If you've received mercy, especially from God, but even another person, someone has seen you as you are. They saw your screw-up, your mess-up. They caught you red-handed. And they took the hit so that you could walk away. Free, And they didn't keep bringing it back up. Oh, I remember that time you did this. If you've ever received mercy, isn't it really hard to be demanding and harsh with other people right after that? As long as you remember that experience, isn't that hard to do? Because immediately, like, you start saying, like, I'm going to make you pay for that. I'm going to hold this against you. And immediately you're like, whoa, whoa, I'm a hypocrite. Like, they literally, like, two hours ago just released me from responsibility for that thing I should have had to pay for. Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Blessed are those who have received God's mercy the rest of their lives. To the extent they remember that, they will be marked by being merciful to other people. Let's zoom out for just a second. Let's look at the big picture, because we were just on the ground talking about the specifics. The poor in spirit, those who mourn, the meek. Let's zoom out and see the big picture here. I, Daniel asked earlier. I don't know uh, if you have been following the news. Um, we don't have cable anymore, so it's been harder to keep track of what's going on. So it's just kind of through websites and pictures. But as I've watched uh, the news uh, this week and seen the pictures and the news stories about Houston, I was shocked by this. Um, there are people in Houston right now who who are sitting on the roofs, waiting for helicopters or boats to come and get them. And I think at this point, this is night number five. And the the ironic thing and the tragic thing is this. They are literally surrounded by resources that are useless. They are literally sitting on top of a house full of things that they bought to keep them safe, to sustain them, To uh, entertain them, to give them a great life, to protect them. And all of those resources are of absolutely no use now because they're underwater. They can't get to them. All they have is the clothes on their back and the shingles they're sitting on. Even though they're surrounded by their stuff, they're sitting on top of a lifetime of possessions. They have everything and they have nothing. And so they are shouting for help. They are screaming at any passing boat. They are waving or putting sheets out for any helicopter in the area to lift them off. They are desperate. And they know they have no hope apart from rescue. They know they can't contribute anything to the rescue. They have nothing to give to the rescuer. They don't have any money. They don't have any stuff. Hey, let me give you a refrigerator. Let me swim down there and get it real quick, pay you for this. They have nothing. They have nothing to warrant the attention of people who have resources to help them. They're poor, even if they were rich four days ago. They're mournful over their helplessness. They're humbled by their condition. They hunger for another to rescue them. And this passage says that God says over people like that, over people who feel that way and are that way spiritually, I hear your cry. Your king has come for you. That's a comment that should land in the ears of every human being in the room. You don't have to be a Christian to hear that. You were made by a God for that God. He is your king, whether you bow the knee to him or not. And he is saying here, I have come for you. I have pursued you. I have heard your cry. I am the resource you lack. All that stuff in your house you thought would save you and get you out of trouble and give you the life you always wanted, it's of zero use to you. But I am here, and I am of every use to you. That is what this passage says, that the king has come to his people with his kingdom in tow. Which means this, guilt-ridden sinner sitting in the room tonight. Your king has come for you. Shame-covered girl or guy in the room tonight. Who is very aware of all the stuff you've done. Your king has come for you tonight. Helpless person, spiritually confused person in the room tonight. Heartbroken mourner in the room tonight. People surrounded by stuff that you thought would make you feel safe. That has never made you feel safe. It's left you just as it found you. Your king has come for you. Blessed are the merciful Don't you think the people who are pulled off these roofs so that they can survive and live, don't you think they're cheering that helicopter as it goes back to get others? Yeah. Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Verses 8 and 9 go together. Blessed are the pure in heart, they're the ones who will see God, and the peacemakers will be called children of God, which is to say that grace will cleanse your heart. It will start to change you now, not in completion right now. That will happen in fullness when we go to see Jesus or He comes here. But it says that grace infiltrates you. It, 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 it sneaks inside of you and begins to change you now. It purifies your heart. It makes you pursue the things your Father pursues, which is peace, not war. Which is harmony, not gossip. Which is relationships coming back together, not bickering and avoiding in competition and slander these are the qualities of the people of God and so Christian in the room tonight take heart if this resonates with you be encouraged know that what you feel and experience is normal it's the way it's supposed to feel if you're a Christian and this doesn't resonate with you, wake up tonight abandon your abandonment of your God and come home If you're not a Christian, you're figuring out where you are. You don't know where you are. You haven't even thought about these questions. Beg God to show you the empty kingdoms that you've given your life to, that all the rest of us in the room have given our lives to, too. Beg him to save you off that rooftop. Because you're sitting on a a lifetime of things you think will help you that have zero hope of helping you. They're submerged, they're useless, they're pointless. Cry out to Him. The King has come, and He knocks on the door. Open it. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank You that You have heard our cry. We are not drowning in our own mess. We might feel isolated, alone, cut off, but the truth is that God so loved the world that He sent His only Son into the world, into the flood, to rescue us in our hopeless and helpless condition. We pray that we would love what we hear tonight, that it would be attractive and beautiful to us, that you would help us make this true in us through your spirit.